when customers come into this business, I want them to feel uh, comfortable. I want them to feel like we're for them. The path to diversity and inclusion starts with intention and then action. In 2004, I didn't speak a word of Spanish. I, I was very uh, ignorant of, of the cultural aspects of, of Mexican culture and, and some of those other things. And as, as I learned more about it, and as I learned the language and all the nuances between South American cultures, Mexican culture, Central American, and all those things, I just, I fell in love with it. And I realized that we could be inclusive, but also unique. My guests today are both champions for inclusive workplaces. Hear how their personal experiences inform how they lead. And we have to bring our, our whole selves to work. All our experiences in life, all our failures, our successes, our weaknesses, our strengths. And I know it's hard, but I think we have to start feeling comfortable by being vulnerable as leaders. Coming up, I'll talk to Rich Bernard and Ann Mukherjee. It's an insightful conversation, highlighting the impact leaders with diverse backgrounds and perspectives can have on workplaces and communities. Welcome to Boost My Business, an original podcast from Boost with Facebook. I'm David Fisher. As Chief Revenue Officer, I get to meet and connect with all kinds of people, from CEOs of major corporations to entrepreneurs and small business owners. It's part of my job that I love and something I want to share with you through this podcast. I'll bring together unexpected pairings of small business owners and industry leaders to explore surprising parallels in values, experiences, and ideas. In addition to powerful conversations, I'll share practical tips and takeaways to help you on your business journey, whether you run a local business or a global enterprise. Diversity and inclusion have been hot-button issues within business circles for quite some time. Now, recent social justice movements have made these issues even more important. In fact, they're a business imperative. All types and sizes of businesses benefit from DNI. It might mean that your business works to reflect the diverse community that it serves. Or maybe it means that cultural differences inform the way you show up in the workplace. I'm excited for my conversation today with two business leaders tackling diversity and inclusion in their own ways. We'll discuss the power of diversity to not only impact your business, but also your community, especially when that diversity starts from the top down. My first guest is Rich Barnard, a small business owner in Oklahoma City. Rich recognized that the Hispanic population in his Midwestern town wasn't getting adequate service at local car dealerships. So he decided to do something about it. Rich opened Tio Chewy's auto sales and finance six years ago with a mission to provide pre-owned vehicles and lending for the underserved Hispanic community of Oklahoma and neighboring communities. Rich's passion for his community also extends to his work in philanthropy as a champion for education and health initiatives. Thanks, David. It's, it's great to be here with you guys. Also joining is Anne Mukherjee, CEO and Chairman of Pernod Ricard USA, who's also the first woman of color to hold that position. Anne is an experienced marketing and sales leader whose 30-year career has been spent working at some of the world's top brands. She's also a very vocal advocate 
for a range of cultural issues affecting people and communities, including taking a stand on consent and stopping hate speech. Welcome to the podcast, Anne. The honor is all mine. Rich, let's start with you. You opened Tio Chewy's with a plan to really make your dealership stand out. Tell us a little bit more about that vision and what led you to open Tio Chewy's in the first place. Well, David, we we had been kind of experienced in the in the car sales and, and lending in, in Oklahoma for quite some time. And in 2004, I met my wife. She was an immigrant from Mexico. And, uh, you know, I fell in love with the culture and shortly thereafter in another business that we were involved in, we tried to do some things to attract the Hispanic community to come to our dealership. And uh, it, it worked okay, uh, but we felt like it would be better if we fully dedicated ourselves to sort of that niche market. We thought that it was uh, a couple things, you know, Hispanics generally are great customers or great fin- friends or loyal. And just from a basic business perspective, a very valuable uh, group to market to and and to have um, as that niche, but they're culturally uh, inclusive and unique. And second, because business generally do a pretty poor job of rolling out the red carpet to this customer base in a very authentic way. And so another peer business might, you know, have a token employee that might speak Spanish or something like that. But for us, it meant creating an entire environment that was conducive to them being comfortable for the transaction to be transparent. Um, Everyone in our customer-facing staff is bilingual, and uh, and our lending products and, and our inventory is sort of sourced specifically for for the uh, Hispanic customer. So that's that's kind of the way that we uh, the way that we adapted from just traditional car into the niche market. Yeah, I can see how this must be really refreshing experience for people to come with backgrounds in Latin or Hispanic heritage, or speaking the same language. Uh, can you talk a little bit on the personal side? Why was doing this, creating that kind of environment so important to you? You know, uh, my wife, as I mentioned earlier, um, and, and getting to know her. So when we, when we met in 2004, I didn't speak a word of Spanish. I, I was very uh, ignorant of, of the cultural aspects of, of Mexican culture and, and some of those other things. And as, as I learned more about it, and as I learned the language and all the nuances that came with the differences to in between Hispanic and Latino, for an example, the differences between South American cultures, Mexican culture, Central American, and all those things, I just, I fell in love with it. And I realized that we could be inclusive, but also unique if, if, if we were able to do this. So from a personal perspective, it was just me uh, getting... Uh, sort of involved in in the Hispanic culture and then eventually in the Hispanic community. And, you know, we have um, a lot of uh, involvement there. So that's that's the reason it was important to me. And as CEO of a company uh, that owns some of the most iconic and well-known spirits, wines, and champagne brands in the world, on top of running the business, you also seek to create inclusive environments, not only for employees, but for consumers of Pernod Ricard products as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your priorities at the company and why diversity and inclusion are so important to you? Absolutely. It's a great question. And, you know, before I answer, I have to just say, Rich, I'm so, I'm so um, 
taken uh, aback by your story. I think it's remarkable. And, you know, and it, and it feeds right into, you know, what, what we stand for at Pernod Ricard. But the core of our mission and values is this notion of conviviality. And what that means is, you know, we believe in the power of human connection. We believe in the power of inclusivity. Uh, we believe that, you know, um, including uh, people and embracing them, embracing all diversity is so important. Um, and that's why we make the products and brands we do. It allows people to come together. It's in our differences and it is at the core of everything that we do from how we build our brands so consumers can buy into them and not just buy them. And it it informs everything that we do from a corporate responsibility perspective. So, you know, it's it's at the very core of who we are as a company and 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 the people within the company. You know, I would also just note that that I saw one of the absolute ads around the election and highlighting the U.S. election, which I I thought just speaks to what you're talking about in part about the way that you're connecting to what's going on in the world around you as well. But to talk about another initiative that that you've led, you know, you you've uh, worked on the hashtag sex responsibly campaign where you've encouraged discussion on the important issue of consent. Can you share why you felt that this was the job for your company to shine a spotlight on this issue? Yes. I mean, especially, you know, in our industry uh, for years, the entire industry has been talking about drinking responsibly. And a lot of that has been around, you know, not drinking and driving and, and we've made, you know, great inroads in that and it's all good. But we know that responsibility goes deeper than that. And there are multiple facets of it. We've come to a point where our consumers are telling us that when it comes to really important cultural and um, societal issues, we expect brands to stand up. And, you know, we learned from our consumer base, especially during the Me Too movement, um, they, they wanted brands to take a stand. And, you know, consent is a, is a very difficult topic. And I think the Me Too movement brought forward this notion of what is consent. We, we felt it was important as a brand like Absolute that when we're going to talk about responsibility, and this is a brand that has always been about cultural provocation. And, um, you know, whether it was back in the 80s and, you know, how Absolute was the proverbial kind of open door at Studio 54 to bring about um, you know, gay rights and um, LG, LGBTQ, we felt we needed to do the same thing in today's world of, of what is important to culture. And so, you know, I myself am a victim of um, sexual abuse. Uh, my mother uh, was killed by a drunk driver. And, you know, as a leader, it was important to me to bring this forward and so, you know, we we said, you know what, let's stop with the, it, was it consensual or not? Unless it's a yes, it's not consensual. So swiping right is not a yes. You know, sharing a taxi cab is not a yes. And for those people who are using alcohol as a weapon to victimize others, you got to stop. And so brands need to to take the position. People are looking to understand what brands stand for and what they stand against. And we felt this was an important thing to do on the brand of Absolute. First of all, thank you for sharing those experiences, including very painful ones. I think people sometimes, you know, even certainly whether or not you're the CEO, want to introduce uh, 
causes and and higher purposes like what you've done. And how did you go about doing that? Because I think a lot of people don't really know where to start with initiatives like that. Well, it first starts with the brand and really what the brand's kind of timeless narrative has been. How do you take that narrative and connect that to today's issues, today's uh, zeitgeist, and make sure that it's relevant for that brand to speak about that? Not every brand can talk about everything. It's it's important that it starts with the brand and with the consumer base the brand serves. Um, I have an obligation on return on investment, but I think we're now coming into a time, especially with COVID and the social unrest, we also have an obligation on return on responsibility. And so as we think about our brands and you know how we how we want consumers to buy into what what you know they believe in, um, we have to be thoughtful about both dimensions and make sure that we're thinking about uh, the return on, on responsibility as equally as we do investment. This pandemic has hit all of us and every business uh, each in different ways. And Rich, I'm curious for you, certainly the auto industry has been hit hard. So what was it like managing your dealership at the onset of this pandemic? What did that look like? And how have you managed that in the months since? Yeah, I think um, scary is is the one word that comes to mind when you think about mid-March for us. Uh, March 18th, we sent out our first uh, business continuity plan to the team. So first, obviously, you have the public health consequences and try to prioritize keeping everyone safe, the economic impact that people were really worried about for our team and our customers. So kind of, you know, in a hurry, we had to create sanitation processes, contactless delivery, where we could do different sort of things from from that. But also, uh, one of the things that I think that we did early on that was really important, and uh, looking back, it seems brave to me at the time, it, around March 18th, we we said for six weeks, everybody's here and everybody stays fully employed. And at that time, we were projecting being 70% off in revenue in our sales side and maybe 30 or 40% off in the loan servicing side. So it was a big step for us, but we thought you know, what we have to do at the very beginning is we have to get make sure that we are led by our, our vision and our value system that tells us that people are the first priority. And beyond that, even on the other side of this, is if there's financial hardship, Ann was talking about responsibility return. We've ta- heard about social return on investments other than financial. I think business leaders these days, it's really important to look beyond the the, the balance sheets and the, and the P&Ls and look further toward that with people and causes and things like that. So those are some of the things that we did early on. And we knew we weren't going to have the showroom traffic. So we said, what are we going to do for these next four, six, eight, however long it takes? And so the initial commitment was six weeks, keep everybody fully employed. We sent the folks home that could work from home. The other people we kept socially distanced and we started a program called Helping Our Heroes. So we partnered with restaurants and supermarkets and gas stations and nonprofits and schools and did things for frontline uh, health workers or restaurant workers that were losing their job. And there's always good that can be done, even in times that there's um, emotionally fear-driven things that are happening that are sort of out of your control. So I'm really proud that our team 
took up this cause because when we when we've been slowly coming out of this and adapting and doing some other things, it's it's been really important to have uh, the goodwill built within our, both our team, our community, and our customer base. And for you, at the out- onset of the pandemic here in the U.S., Pernod Ricard ended up at the forefront of companies providing support. Can you describe the actions that your company took and and also talk about the decision that you made to make a pretty big change for the company? Yeah, I mean, I think agility has taken on a whole new definition. Um, You know, that week, uh, Rich, that you talked about, you know, I still remember March 16th on Monday, you know, my team came to me and said, you know, I think we have the ability to, you know, start creating hand sanitizers. But we've got some regulations and, and regulatory bodies that we need to go to. And, you know, I, I have an amazing, amazing team. My public affairs team literally worked with the Trump administration, with Peter Navarro's group. Uh, and we got through uh, multiple bodies of, of regulators uh, in three days, and we were producing in five. Mm. Um, wow. You know, we've been producing hand sanitizer free of cost to the U.S. government, managed by FEMA. And we have been supporting first responders, police, the medical staff, in cities all across America from our uh, manufacturing facilities, our distilleries. Even today, we continue to do it, and um, we do it free of cost, back to return on responsibility. And what it's done for our company, where people today are, they, they realize I'm not just creating a business enterprise. I'm helping America get through COVID. And it's just changed the way people think about coming to Pernod Ricard. You've both talked about the commitments that you made, the actions that you took, and the impact on your teams, your employees. There's so much advice and so many learnings in there for how to manage a team through a crisis. So I'm just curious for each of you, what do you know now maybe that you didn't know back in the period in mid-March of how to lead an organization and how to lead a team? You know, I, I think for me, a few lessons learned as a leader of an organization it's so okay to say, I don't know, and to say, I need to learn. You know, I remember after the Black Lives uh, Movement started, there were so many people, I have so many young people, people who, you know, are in New York, who are all over the country, and they they were shaken. And I just, I literally stopped my, my meetings for three days and went on a listening tour talking to my employee resource groups, you know, talking to, to various groups in my organization. And I I listened. I think the hardest thing is to realize we now live in a world where the only thing that's certain is that the future is uncertain. And we have to, therefore, understand there are no playbooks anymore. And I'm trying to help my organization with this notion of advancing through ambiguity. I'm trying to get the organization to see there are some things that we can control, and that's within our influence. And how does that intersect with the things that matter? Because if you over-worry about things you can't control, it's it's not going to help anyone. And if you worry about things that don't matter, you're working on the wrong things. So it's in that intersection, and it's about high touch, it's about constant communication, and most importantly, it's about compassion. Rich, how about you? You know, David, I think that during the acute period, that, that we've had through COVID of high stress, uh, high levels of uncertainty, as Anne was referring to. Y- you think about how you handle things and, and want to handle them 
quickly, want to get to the next step, want to free up resources, make people feel more comfortable. And there's going to be mistakes made. And that's that's kind of what I've learned. And I've told our people over the last few months, I think Silicon Valley is really good at this and where maybe, you know, politically uh, in this country, we're not so good. And that's risk, failure, making mistakes sometimes is okay. But your intentions are really important in all of this. And as I kind of referred to earlier, our values and our vision have to be at the forefront of all of this. And the authenticity of how we lead has to all tie back together because we've been working on lots of initiatives that talk about how we speak to one another, the way that we um, prioritize conversation, communication, how that has to be at the highest level, and uh, the way that that affects people and it makes them feel. I think that authenticity is is so important in times like this because uh, you've banked that confidence that, that people have in you on your team and in your community. And during that, if you do make a mistake, if you do take a risk and fail in some way or go the wrong direction on something, then then you've banked enough goodwill to, to make it through. So uh, for it to be okay during these times that we're all learning, it's a path that's unclear and and you have to do the best you can, but it has to be all predicated on people's confidence in you doing it with under the right value system and with the right purpose in mind. Rich, you talked there about authenticity and and you spoke about the courage to sometimes say, I don't know. I think there's so many valuable lessons in the way that you both described that way that you've led. But I think the reality for a lot of people is that it's it's hard to be that courageous. So I'm wondering how you both think about the risk-taking that comes with that authenticity sometimes and how you try to bring it out in others around you. You know, there was an old adage in the movie, The Godfather, you know, it's not it's not personal, it's business. I think in today's world, it is personal. Um, and we have to bring our, our whole selves to work. All our experiences in life, all our failures, our successes, our weaknesses, our strengths. And I know it's hard, but I think we have to start feeling comfortable by being vulnerable as leaders. And... I, I think when people see that, they, they believe that you're more authentic. When you do that, and as a leader, it sends such a strong signal to everyone in the organization in the sense that they can do it themselves. And everybody has a story. You know, everybody has, has walked through fire in some form or another. I think we live in a world today that if we can transform pain into power, and vulnerability into action. If we can do that collectively, what a better world this would be. And uh, I wrote down two things when I learned that we were gonna be on this podcast together. One was bringing your whole self to work and two, the word conviviality. And it's interesting that you said bringing your whole self to work just now because that's what this is reminding me of when you were talking about the quote from The Godfather. You know. Tio Chui, the name of our business, Tio Chui's Auto Sales. Tio means uncle in Spanish, and Chui is uh, a nickname for Jesus, which is a very common name in Mexico or Latin America. He's a real person. It's my wife's uncle. He's sort of the shining light of the family, the patriarch that we go down. And when, when we were having the conversation, how do we name the business? I said, when customers come into this business, I want them to feel uh, comfortable. I want them to feel like we're for them. I want them to feel... Uh, there's honest communication going on. And, and I said, I wanted to feel like when we go to your T.O. Chewy's house, and that's how we name the business. 
And it, the tagline that we use on all of our TV commercials is Porque eres familia, which means because you're family. And the environment, both for our team and, and our customers, we want to create that because, uh, you know, bringing your whole self to work means that we don't expect you to come to the time clock, punch in, forget everything else that's going on in your world. You have to be more than that to be a real authentic leader in the way that we're talking about right now. And um, you have to be dedicated to it. You have to prioritize it. You have to pick the right folks, obviously. And your team has to buy into it, too. And, and if there's anything that I'm really proud of that we've done, it's it's the continuity of being able to get behind that and and kind of spur it forward. That's amazing. Such a good story. Uh, and I, I didn't know about your T.O. Chewy. Now I did. So now <laughs> I understand the name of the business. But yeah. let me pick up on, you know, some of what you talked about there. The, you know, the reality is, is, is this period, this pandemic has been hard for everyone, but it's, it's hit, um, minority communities, including the Latinx community, it's hit minority owned businesses, particularly hard. So I'm just wondering what can people do to better support Hispanic and Latinx businesses through this challenging period and into the future? You know, the Hispanic community has changed a lot in the last 30 years. I think there's been another iteration of that in the last five or so years. And there's going to be another one likely, uh, moving forward. And from my perspective, if we continue to allow highly valued immigrants to, to come in, uh, and I'm not talking just about Hispanic immigrants, but just in general, hardworking, taxpaying, economic participants, and then we help kind of solve a broader social and economic problem, both here and abroad. And a lot of immigrant and Hispanic-owned businesses, you know, when you're doing business with them, you're supporting that sort of broader cause. And so I have, you know, I have really strong thoughts and opinions on on immigration in general, but ultimately this is just continues to be a country that's built in part by innovative and inspirational Hispanic and, and other immigrant entrepreneurs. And if you support that, then I think that you're supporting a really good and important thing broadly. One of the things that really interests me in your story, Rich, and what you've built in Tio Chewies is that you've seized on an opportunity to serve a community that was underserved. You talked about the personal aspect of it, but it's obviously also a business that you're running. I'm curious how much more unmet opportunity there is right now. And would you point to this as an opportunity that a lot more people should be paying attention to? You know, uh, this is really interesting that you asked this question because we're working on a, a project now that uh, we've gathered a group of 10 of our team members. We call it Spanish Forward. And these 10 uh, team members are from five different countries. And we're trying to create a training program to confront what we call the authenticity challenge, meaning that you know, many of us who were born in the United States and grew up in the U.S. and and live kind of relatively comfortably in a bilingual, bicultural world, but lean heavily into the American culture, like some recent immigrants or folks that are less comfortable with the language or even things as simple as different consumer finance products in, in our scenario in Mexico or South America versus the United States. Uh, we want to ask questions concerning our communication and interactions, and we've gone to the healthcare community to learn about this because if you can imagine authentic communication between um, let's say a hospital or a doctor or a clinic in the United States dealing with someone that is from uh, Oaxaca that immigrated here three or four years ago, there's a lot of cultural variances and differences. You know, there's some folklore that goes on with health issues in, in, in Hispan the Hispanic community and things like that. 
breaking down these walls and creating an authentic, more authentic conversation, uh, I think is the most important thing. So is there an opportunity, uh, whether we're talking about providing capital or getting into more of, of this space? There is. And the reason I think that we can do a good job in this is because lots of times people, I think, don't take the deep dive into the authenticity of it serious enough. And, and that's something that we are working on right now. You know, we serve a hot drink, sort of like hot chocolate called atole every Saturday morning. There's a lot of culturally relevant things that we do that we try to say, we're here, we want to make you feel culturally comfortable in this environment. But I think a lot of the mistakes that people make are they just don't do the deep dive and rely on authentic communication. And that's what we're working on right now. We're not, we're not aces right now on it, but that's, I think, the better way to serve that community. And I think other immigrant communities is to be as authentic as you can be and understand uh, because there are differences, but you can be inclusive and unique in the, in the same time. And I'd love your perspective on this as someone who manages many different brands, each with its own identity and values and, and target audience. How do you think about serving different communities, different populations, including minority populations? And I think every brand um, has to understand the consumer it serves and brands that have to understand, you know, what traditions are and, and how that how that can actually help others to see what a particular immigrant group might have grown up with and share that as a as a way to for people to embrace diversity you know the the category of tequilas and mezcals and things that are made from agave is just exploding in the united states well where does that come from it comes from mexico something that has been celebrated in that culture you know for centuries it's now coming into the American palate. And as it does, and we have these amazing brands, whether it's, you know, Avian or Altos or Ardell McGay Mescal, you know, as we celebrate those brands, we celebrate their heritage and what they bring. And, you know, that opens up not only to celebrate uh, the Latinx community here, but it helps others to see what those brands uh, can do if you're not Latinx. And, you know, that's the beauty of, you know, working in this industry. You know, all these wonderful products and brands comes from all over the world. Um, and being able to tell that story to help people uh, embrace diversity and different dreams of, of different groups around around the world. Um, what, a, what a great way to, to bring about unity. And you're also such a role model for so many people, including women entrepreneurs and people of color. What advice do you have for female entrepreneurs and, and women of color? You know, I, I think um, I'm so proud to see so many of these amazing women and in so many walks of life, in business, in politics, in, you know, they're shaping the future. And what I say to any, any woman I, I talk to is, you know, there's a lot, look, there's pressure on everybody. But as a woman, you have the pressure of being a mom and a wife and a daughter and a daughter-in-law and a sister and I can go on and on and on. And cultural pressure for us to be perfect in everything that we do. And I say to all women around the world, 
perfection is a sickness. And don't try to be perfect because it's in your imperfection lies your beauty, lies your strength, lies your intelligence. And it's that imperfection that you bring to the world that creates life and creates progress. And so to women, I always say first, and this is the hardest part for women to do, if you want others to love you, start by loving yourself. You know, when you get on a plane, they tell you when that mask comes down, you got to put it on yourself first before you can help anyone else. So to all women, I say, you know, embrace who you are, every, every bit of you, the good, the bad, the not so bad, who cares, but love yourself and use who you are to create what you want, because women can make the impossible possible. And if, if I can follow up on that, is I, so I have two young daughters, five and three, and my favorite picture of uh, one of my daughters is she had on a, di- a dress from one of the you know Disney characters, a Disney princess, and some house shoes that have the the long claws on them, right? Like so, it was part uh, part beauty, part beast is what I think we <laughs> took the picture and put it, posted on social media. But that's my favorite picture of her, and it makes it makes me want to tell her you can be feminine, you can be fierce. You can be proud, you can be strong, you can be confident, you can be anything you want to be. And if there's anything that keeps me up at night, it is lying in bed thinking about my daughters, thinking about what can we do to make sure that this next generation of of women and women leaders have the confidence to be, as we were talking about earlier, their whole self, not be afraid and, and to be be a woman, yes, but also be confident and fierce and proud of who you are. Oh, Richard, great dad. Well, Anne and Rich, this has been a great conversation filled with valuable perspectives and tremendous insights. Thank you both so much. Thank you. It was great to listen to you, Rich. Very inspiring. Thanks. It's been terrific to be with both of you guys in conviviality. I had to look up that word, Anne. That's inspiring for me. I wish you all convivial times. Coming up, I'll share business tips and key takeaways from my conversation to help boost your business. At Facebook, We understand that successful small businesses drive healthier communities. That's why we've launched Facebook Elevate to support communities of color. Elevate is a community as well as a learning platform created to accelerate the growth of Latinx, Hispanic, and Black-owned businesses. Head over to facebook.com slash business to join the community and get access to free educational tools, workshops, and personalized support to grow your business. I really enjoyed my chat with Anne and Rich and thought they both shared some important leadership lessons that I won't soon forget. Remember when Rich shared how he was able to differentiate his business while celebrating Hispanic and Latinx cultures? He found there's beauty in understanding cultural nuances and honoring them authentically. That's a lesson for other entrepreneurs on how to be inclusive yet distinct. And how about Anne's focus? on return on responsibility versus return on investment. As she sees it, the business world is evolving 
And people are looking to brands to stand for something. As the CEO of a major corporation, she's encouraging others to look beyond the balance sheet to focus on what really matters, people. And finally, they both agreed on the importance of bringing your whole self to work and being vulnerable as leaders. By tapping into their unique life experiences and diverse perspectives, while also being empathetic to those around them, they lead by example to create environments that encourage employees and customers to be more open. In the final episode of the season, TV personality Tan France joins Ryan Cobbins, owner of Denver's Coffee at the Point, for an uplifting discussion on entrepreneurship, seizing opportunities, and the power of a positive outlook. You've been listening to Boost My Business, brought to you by Boost with Facebook. New episodes are released every two weeks. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more information, see the show notes or visit us at facebook.com business. I'm David Fisher. Thanks for listening. Thank you.